Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fault, editor of the Toolkit, and my guest today is writer, director, executive producer of Russian Doll, Leslie Headland. You know, is that your actual writer, director, executive producer? Is that kind of... And creator. And creator. So that's, yeah, that's co-creator, so yeah. Amy, Natasha... And Amy, Natasha, and I are all creators on the show. Um, I was kind of the, I would say, the de facto showrunner in terms of, um, uh, you know, kind of that writing EP person. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, I directed half the season. Yeah. So my understanding is, you know, this is just a lot of this is coming from Natasha's life in that from it's like a seven year process here of kind of taking and taking something and, and breaking I'm wondering, maybe we could just start. What is what is the kernel there? Uh, I mean, I, obviously part of it is her life experience, but what is kind of like the kernel that you're starting from? Because then you have to build this whole structure around it. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where they were with it when I came on, was kind of like we have a lot of ideas and a lot of like raw material and a lot of things we're interested in. You know, they had made this other pilot where, you know, uh, she played another character named Nadia. Like, it, you know, so it was it was kind of like, there's this there's this um pastiche I guess of ideas and things and references but the question was what is the show like what is the show actually going to be about um and I think the challenge for me when I came on was how do you answer that question without it becoming pat you know and too high concepty you know it's um uh so at some point, we stumbled upon the idea that Nadia would die in the, you know, in the show. That that she would die at some point in the show, um, or that the show was examining her death. Um, and so, you know, a lot of stuff sprang up from there, like all, you know, all that jazz, Groundhog Day, Back to the Future, <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life, um, Spirits of the Dead. It's really, I, I think more all that jazz than I do Groundhog Day. I know Groundhog yeah, Day because of the device, no. but all that jazz feels a little bit more, uh, Russian Doll is not as self-aware, obviously, as Fosse is, but it does feel like there's a little, there, there's a real kinship yeah. in terms of what you're kind of reaching for in such, to some degree. Yeah, it was a, it was a movie that, that I, of course, I've seen a bunch of times and Natasha brought up early on and uh, she has more fondness for that movie than I do, but I knew what she meant right away. And so one of the things, one of the first things I thought about was that sequence where, you know, he's in the bathroom doing drug or, you know, doing Dexedrine and going showtime and it's the four seasons on the, you know, so I think that might have been where the idea of her being in the bathroom and respawning in the bathroom came from. Um, uh, Maybe, you know. um, But that was where it started to, I started to hook in, was that I was like, okay, so this is going to be a meditation on mortality uh, through the lens of someone, uh, meaning the performer, but also my own personal experience, uh, who has had both near-death experiences as well as um, substance abuse, as well as, you know, families with mental illness, as well as et cetera, et cetera. So then it started to become the eternal sunshine question, which is, or the being John Malkovich question, which is we've kind of figured out what the gimmick is, but what are we actually saying? So she's going to die, um, but why is she dying? And and what is that saying? And and the thing that just kept coming up for me was this idea of choice 
and this Camus quote that we used in the pitch, which is life is the sum of your choices, that um, Amy used to say, like, make a different choice, have a different life. Um, and I thought it was kind of interesting, uh, more from my own personal experience, of why I would continue to choose the same things or um, exhibit the same behavior, but expect different results. I would get into these habits and patterns, these destructive relationships, so on and so forth, and then you know, kind of be shocked when it all blew up in my face <laughs> again. And so I believe that was around sort of the, that was sort of the idea of how we got into the video game aspect of it, you know, that that it became a, okay, so it's not the same day and it's not the same, she doesn't die at the end of every episode. It's not an episode thing. It's not a, it's not a, um, a day, a Groundhog Day thing. It's also not quite um, as, um, dreamy is all that jazz it's actually going to be a bug in the program you know it'll be a, a glitch essentially that she has to fix both internally which she does in episode seven and then externally which she does in episode eight um so that's a very long-winded way of kind of describing what the process and you know add to that a lot of frustration a lot of false starts a lot of like drafts that didn't work, a lot of pitches that got shot down, like add to that five to six other writers, you know, that all were, you know, coming up with all of these things and all of the things that you end up seeing in the show. And you get kind of a sense of the evolution of, I have an idea, I have themes and a character, but what is it, what is it about? One of the things that really struck me and I, it's one of those, I'm, I obviously piece it together backwards because I get to see the final result, you know, <laughs> but one of the things that seems to be magic about what you found is there is this natural like what is going on and you guys embrace that like her trying to figure that out and in tackling that you're also tackling all these issues that you just talked about they become yeah. one so the device you know it's almost a reverse you know groundhog day they kind of tried to like make you not think about the device and like <laughs> you guys are like actually um attacking you know what is she's like what is going on yeah and, that, and, and and in that investigation becomes the tackling of all these big kind of existential issues yeah. that you're you're tackling and that's that sounds simple in retrospect but to get to that point that it's got that drive has got to be very difficult to like kind of get to to make that work it was very difficult it was very difficult it was a lot of like i said it was a lot of um trial and error you know, in my opinion, it was it was figuring out um, how you were going to deal with the real logic problems that this particular device and the setup of the show was going to um, address. At the same time, what was really fun about writing this show was that I would kind of and I'm sure the other writers would feel this way too because I saw them also going through the same things, is you would have this idea, you know. I had this idea of her falling down the stairs and not, you know, and just kind of, just I'm going to get down the stairs. Like that is now my new goal. Because um, I love this Cassavetti's quote about shadows where he says, it's a story of people with problems that are overtaken by other problems. So that's kind of my favorite thing is like, I have this problem, which I'm, I keep dying and I keep coming back. And now my new problem is that I can't get down the stairs, you know? So making it, it's the same problem, but smaller. It's the same problem, but bigger. It's, it's the same 
futile gesture of what we do every single day, which is get up and put our clothes on and go out and be humans in the world. And every day we get smacked down by life. <laughs> I, I, ima yeah. I imagine to a certain degree, um, working with less elements, less locations, less yes. things helps here because yeah. you have this repetition and you have, you can build on certain things. Like I, I notice every time that you did add a location or add something, you were actually adding a whole new character <laughs> or storyline, yeah. but kind of like kind of working within a, a smaller sandbox, right? Yes. Yeah. And that was the case with the shoot was, you know, it was a, it were five day shoots for each episode and, um, uh, they were, you know, cross-boarded, so it was one through three, five through six, seven and eight. Um, so you do the, all the stairs for three episodes. Yes, you exactly, do all the house, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, if we needed to go, if if we needed to go back, we would go back. Um, but some stuff like the deli, for example, everything in the deli was shot in the last block mm -hmm. because. Um, yeah, it was just they were never going to let us use that deli again. <laughs> Most likely is probably why that, that choice was made. But but yes, yeah, so when you are dealing with those kinds of restraints and you're doing location, you know, the only set that was built for the show was Maxine's apartment. So when you're dealing with that kind of a constraint, then yeah, you do have to get inventive. How can we use this for, you know, every inch of what we have or, or every moment that we have it and for every inch that we own? I love that location and I, I love starting every episode there. I think most episodes there because it's always returning to this 36 yeah. birthday. It's always, oh, yeah. it's, it's always this shorthand of, you know, where she is and what's going on <laughs> with her friends and it, it becomes and it's like even just the way she exits that bathroom is always this kind of you know like i agree that was really one of my fun it's it's kind of not the most glamorous thing to say but when people are like what did you have the most fun shooting i uh, loved shooting natasha walking out of the bathroom like each yeah. time just coming down that hallway and just being like one time just kind of like not really sure what's going on that's like because you're you know you're 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 you know you're block shooting most of that stuff. So you're, you are shooting each time, you know, that she comes out of that bathroom within the episode in the same moment. And so it is kind of fun and, and different. But, you know, unlike Groundhog Day, I keep, I hate to keep bringing it up, but just from a filmmaking standpoint, when we knew we were in another episode, we would, you know, jump the line and we would start covering it from a different place. Like we didn't want you to have the same feeling every single time you were in Maxine's kitchen, every single time you were in Alan's apartment. We did want you to feel like these places are big and they're different and they're livable and the characters in them are not just NPCs, you know, non-playable characters in video games that don't have any sentience unless the lead character interacts with them. They actually can do their own stuff. It's just that like, you know, we're just gonna check in with them at different moments. Did you eventually, did this project eventually I hate to use the word graduate to a writer's room, a traditional writer's room. Yes. Yeah. We did have a writer's room from, uh, I think it was like October or November through the beginning of the following year. Um, it was a rather small writer's room. It was Natasha, myself, Allison Silverman, um, and Shiraco Dunlap. Uh, Shiraco left at the beginning of the year, I think around January and Tammy Sager came in. Um, and then Flora Birnbaum and, uh, Jocelyn Bio were our, our staff writers. Um, and they were, in and out of the room depending on when we could afford them. <laughs> <laughs> and has this become literally the writing of the episodes? I, I you know, I, I read somewhere, I don't remember where it was a while ago, but that the 
the room is covered with charts and trying to keep people oriented and stuff. Oh man, yeah. But but I imagine yeah. I imagine part of this is the execution of it, right? Like you've you've kind of answered those big questions over seven years. Now it's time to to to, to yeah, write. Yeah, yeah, and that's where the other writers were so helpful in in my opinion was that people you know. Uh, like Tammy and Allison and and Scirocco kind of going like but 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 wait you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's like I would just have this idea or or Natasha would you know have an idea and we you know we, we've been kind of working through this thing for many years and you've been living, like, you've been living just, in your own Russian doll exactly <laughs> like you know and they were kind of and also the actors would do this too they would kind of be like hold on one second <laughs> um I was over here you know so now you're saying and, and it was really helpful to actually walk through it and and have people kind of tracking it in a way that we had not uh, or hadn't even thought we were going to need to. Um, so that was really helpful. Uh, but it did, you know, a lot of times it did come down to like, does this make emotional sense? You know, I, I kept feeling like if it makes emotional sense, then the audience will probably forgive us. You know, if so to me, if it ever did come down to like, you know, you either have to make this choice or this choice. It's like, well, which one? And I think the other writers fall this way too. Uh, which one serves the character better and helps the overall arc of that of Nadia and or Alan the most? It sounds like, uh, and I want to make sure I have this right. Loops. It sounded like yes, like we call them loops. It, it, yeah, that was more of a. Um, important organizing kind yeah. of principle than maybe necessarily thinking in terms of episodes. Yeah, it was much more organizational in the sense of we knew that um, production design-wise, th- we wanted things to start disappearing in a particular loop. So we realized that sometimes we were going to have to speak in episode speak for certain things. And then for other things like script continuity um production design um any of those things that were affected by each loop we would have to speak in loop we would have to say this is loop um this is loop f and they would all go okay that means something all the set decorators are like got it you know (laughs) whereas the actors are like that doesn't mean anything to us you know like um except for the people that are actually experiencing the loops you know um, like like Nadia and Alan. So you directed half of the episodes, including the first one. And, yes. And and the, th- I mean this is a compliment, but I, it's one of the things you know I, I've done watched other series and kind of broke down other series, this kind of Emmy cycle, and really talented directors. And I can't separate. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? I don't like. I have to go look and be like, "That's the Leslie episode." I'm so glad. That, that's that the, means that, so much to that's me. That's and and so I'm wondering because I, I think I think I'm interpreting from your role. Part of this was establishing a certain language, a certain yeah. look up front. Yeah. And then building a team that could, well, obviously Natasha's part of the team, but like that. That's no, a, yeah. That that that's. Um, Carrying this through, like kind of establishing this uh, common language and, yes. and upfront. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I really appreciate. I do take it very much as a compliment, and I I have always said if you if you notice that it's me directing, then I've failed. Like I really truly feel like um, I I have the utmost respect for directors that want to put in their own kind of spin on things, but. Uh, 
and put in their little Easter eggs, like, you know, POV from inside a car trunk, you know, like, and it's like, oh, great, that's, we're waiting for that moment, or like, I'm going to make a cameo because I'm Alfred Hitchcock and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I, I think the more, the more dynamic but invisible at the same time that I can be, the better. You should feel like you are in a world where these characters exist. You should not be thinking someone directed this. Um, and so to me, the most important thing about that first block was to create literally an ecosystem, like not just um, on screen, but off screen as well, so that it felt like this is the pace we're moving at. This is what the show looks like. This is how um, this is how we deal with these types of scenes, these scenes that have to do with these characters. We're going to shoot them this way. Um, the most important thing in this scene is blank, so let's do that. I mean, at one, at one point, Chris and I kind of stopped talking about what the shots were going to be. Like, he just knew... Chris Teague was the cinematographer the whole Thank series. you. He was for the whole series. For the whole We were talking about before we rolled, so I... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, But no, he, he literally... We got to a point where when I was shooting episode seven, you know, I would just block the scene, and I would just, just go to Video Village and sit down and you know, work on the other stuff, watch a cut, do something, you know. And then I'd look up and I'd be like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted because he just knew based on the way that I'd blocked everyone, he knew what it was that I was going to want to be looking at. Um, and if I, you know, I would watch camera rehearsal. If I didn't like it, I'd say, actually, I want this thing and so on and so forth. But uh, but I think a lot of it is is being clear from the outset, which includes like a lookbook for me. Um, which my designer, who's also my sister, creates. She creates my lookbook for both pitches and then also when I start a project so that I can be very clear with all the department heads across the board. Um, I very often, people get annoyed about this, but I very often um, have tone meetings with everyone in them, which everyone's kind of like annoyed by because, and I get it because they're all really scrambling and doing a lot of different stuff. Everyone in uh, Russian Doll was down for it because it was so confusing. Um, we had a, like a loop meeting where, you know, um, I went through, I think Natasha was there too. I think we both went through each um, each each loop, kind of describing what happens here. So A through D, all the animals are going to disappear. D through um, H, uh, these things are going to happen from, you know, J to, you know, P, these things are going to happen. Um, and uh, and then the ADs had to really be together about in what way do we shoot these. Because if everything's starting to move away, we don't want to have to take everything out and then put everything back in. Um, especially with five-day shoots, you know, like you just don't have enough time to turn those things around. So, What types of things do you put in your lookbook in terms of, it seems like tone and is very important for you. I'm wondering, you know, how do you establish that in a, in a lookbook? I ask Inga, my sister Inga, I ask her to pull first and foremost um, uh, tonal images that don't come from other movies uh, because it's important to me to reference films, obviously, but a lot of the time... That can I, be so weighted. It can be very weighted. Like, people will kind of see a, a, a shot from Zodiac and they'll kind of go, uh, uh, wait, this is going to be Zodiac? You know, and it's like, no... You know, it's not going to be Zodiac. You know, but for example, I do, I, I break them into sections. I ask her to do tone, world, which usually has to do with 
um, both how it should feel watching the show, like what the audience should feel while they're watching it, as well as some ideas for um, production design. Um, sometimes, sometimes I do a costume section, just depending on the show. I don't think we did one on this one, but... Um, when I did Heather's, we did a costume section because, you know, they're all color coordinated. They're, they all had a very distinct look. Um, uh, so we did a section for that. Um, I usually try to do a cinematography section where I talk a little bit about how I'm planning on shooting things. Um, this is really good for the DP as well. So we're not kind of like sitting there endlessly shot listing. It's like I want to like one of the things that I talked about in the book with Chris was um, use, using neon lighting and trying to keep it, trying to keep the nighttime scenes still dark. That that was one of my main concerns was that I knew we were going to be shooting at night a lot, but it is still, a, I guess, for lack of a better term, a comedy. So it couldn't be high key lighting where you know, um, well, you know what I'm talking about. It's like when you see a, a horror film and you're like, why does this look like it's all happening during the daytime? You know. Um, I think because I wanted to keep a sense of danger and dread there, it was important to really say ahead of time, like, this is what I want to utilize. I want to utilize shadows. I want to utilize smoke. I want to utilize um, neon. And then I would use cinematic references like 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 um, uh, fluorescence for for um, from Zodiac and and um, natural lighting as often as we could. Um, uh, yeah, so I don't know if that answered your lookbook it, question. It, it did. Okay, great. I'm always curious about that. Um, no, it's really, uh, people don't really talk about it enough. I wish, especially for a toolkit, you know, for, especially for something like this, I think it's worth saying, like, find somebody that you really love, you know, working with and, and help them. I mean, I, I really get a lot of my ideas from what she pulls. You know, she'll, I'll kind of say, like, take a look at this artist, take a look at this artist. And then she'll pull a bunch of things or, or I'll say, take a look at um, samurai culture, or samurai thing, you know, like whatever it is. And she'll pull them for me and I'll start looking at them and I'll start thinking like, oh, gosh, you know what would be great is if, you know, this thing would happen. You know, like, if you know, so I think if you can find somebody like that, it's, it's, really, it's really good to help. Um, coalesce, you know, all the different ideas into one cohesive vision. You, you've referenced the fact that from a production design standpoint, uh, just from a pure story standpoint, space changes, things disappear. And yes, they, they, yeah, 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 yeah. But be, and that, that serves a, a story function because of the world actually changing. But in general, um, visually, with, with that exception, there's not um, a huge effort if, for, in terms of delineating the space, in terms of look, and, and trying to orientate ourselves, in terms of creating different looks for different for different headspaces, it really seems like it's more of a subjective camera. Like the camera is dictated by oh, like, yeah. by like where Natasha is and things going like that, rather than like you know. I don't know, like doing a different lighting scheme because it's like a different loop or, or something. Oh, like, yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. We tried to keep it pretty. I mean, again, I would love the camera to be as invisible as possible, meaning, um, you know, my I mean, like, you know, I mean. And when I say invisible, I, I one of the things that just occurred to me is uh, there's a David Fincher quote where he's like, I love the, the idea of the camera being this kind of om omniscient thing, this thing that knows exactly where to go, where to catch things. And um, and I, I, I wouldn't go as far to say that our camera was omniscient, but it definitely, 
it definitely had the um, kind of a voyeuristic feeling to it and would kind of just follow every once in a while would pronounce itself as being there like you know in episode one when she dies the first time um, I made this choice in the edit to start on her back and to be pushing toward her, you know, which is a very ominous kind of like the camera has its own kind of thought on what's going on. But I think the thing that really sells that moment is that Natasha turns around and it's her face that makes you kind of start laughing because you're like, you're like, but we, but the reason I did that was in my mind, it was very technical and perfunctory which was that we we needed to, I knew in my head that we needed to sell that she was dead so I knew we would end on a close-up so cutting close-up to close-up is a little almost too jarring right like it's like you want to have a moment where you know she's alive before she does and so um there are a couple fun shots like that uh in episode seven there's kind of like a wandering steady cam POV shot of her that feels you know it's too clean for where she is emotionally. Like, so if we really wanted it to be her POV, it would have been handheld, you know, but it's actually this kind of glidey, steady cam, almost the shining type feeling of like, you know, this, this apartment knows more than it's letting on. And I think there are the places where you can use the camera to kind of punctuate that. I think when you use it every episode, there's a moment like that. It starts to, it starts to get, um, it l just you loses its juice, I guess. Let's talk about the East Village. I mean, I, I have a feeling I'm about the same age as the creators of the show, and so the East Village <laughs> meant something to me. Uh, I, I imagine not be, uh, in kind of like you know the early 2000s, late 90s. It, uh, you know, it I, there's something. Um, it's very much the East Village, but you gave it like this look and it gave oh, it this feel and it was it was really fun to watch because it really I mean, I don't I, I, I'm sure visually it means something to someone that doesn't spend time there, but it really was. I think it means a lot to people, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I think especially New Yorker, not to interrupt you, but like a lot of New Yorkers have said to me, like, that's exactly my neighborhood. That's that's my deli. That's. Um, oh, I, it's, you know, Sonny's, I go to get my sandwiches there. Like everyone, you know, they like know that bar that we shot at. And, you know, I'm really happy that people feel that way, that we kind of embrace. And we we really, that was something that was on the show before I came onto it, was that it was going to take place in the East Village, that it was going to take place around. Is that part of Nat Natasha's story? Is that, is yeah. that it means something? Because you can kind of feel that it means something. It to means something to her. I think that, I think she's just lived there forever. She used to live in the Cristadora um, which is where we were going to have Nadia live, but we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't get it, obviously. Um, um, but we wanted Maxine to live in the Talmud building, but we couldn't get that either. So we, we used the church on the opposite end of the park. And, you know, so there are a lot of things in there that are fudges, you know, but, but Natasha, and I really have to hand this to her because I, as someone who has shot in New York a bunch, know that a lot of the times because you're a location based shoot and you don't have a lot of time that, um, you know, you have to you have to sacrifice the believability of where you are in New York, um, not to like the John Wick extent. <laughs> you know, where you're like, this is definitely not the same building. But um, there's, there's not staples in the Lower East Side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, excuse me. Um, but um, but to her credit, she really pushed a lot to keep it there. It, it, you know, even in the places that I felt like we could probably cheat this. Mm. You know, she was like, I don't think we can cheat this. I think we have to make it down here and and I'm glad that she pushed on that because seeing it now I think it does have that special 
vibe to it. Um, and we only we only went above 14th Street once, you know. So for what was that? Was that the, for Ruth's? Oh, for Ruth's yeah. uh, brownstone. Well, Ruth, Ruth doesn't live on the east yeah. side. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a cheat if you didn't go above 14th Street. <laughs> um, want to focus a little bit on the uh, last episode. Um, yes, yeah, and it, it just kind of actually goes back to where we started. I mean. It ends on a feeling. It ends yeah. on, um, you know, it, to, to grow into um, suddenly, I don't know how to describe it, but two parallel yeah. realities. That's, that'll <laughs> be the term I use. And then, um, and to, to, to end, and by the way, the, 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 in general, as always, people that listen to podcasts, this is, this is for people that have seen the show. So this <laughs> is not, you know, at this point, I hope you realize that. But, you know, this, the way that you're ending, there is a conclusion but it's not something that necessarily feels like this wrapping up of the narrative or the solving right. of things. Yeah. And I, I have to imagine, you know, kind of, I mean, I want to talk about that episode, but I also just think like, I imagine you kind of knew you were headed there and you kind of work backwards to a certain degree. Cause it's it, it, to la- to stick that ending. If I was the fourth creator in the room, that's yeah. the part that I would have had agita over the last seven years. Um, I wish we could say that we did that. <laughs> we have, we actually did not. Um, we actually broke, uh, and there was a lot of, what did you say, agita? <laughs> there was a lot of agita um, over it uh, in the writer's room and, and amongst us, you know, of, of how are we going to end this? Like, what is the thing that connects these two people? And, um, and, and how, how are we going to stick the landing? And, um, I can only speak for myself. I, I feel like it was a lot, whenever I was in the room and we were talking about it and this fear would kind of come up that we're not going to solve it, I just was like, I can't give in to that fear at all. Like, I just can't even entertain it because if I do, we will die. Like, we will be like a shark that stops moving. Like, we just have to keep hacking away at this I know it's there somewhere and um I have faith that between you know myself and all the talented writers and all the talented producers on the show we will be able to crack something and there were a bunch of different versions of the ending that and and one in particular that we pitched to Netflix and they actually shot they actually it was one big note they ever gave us was they asked they asked us to change it because it was too similar um to uh oh gosh what's that show called maniac there was which i have not seen but but i guess the thing we had pitched was a was similar to a twist in maniac and they were like we're very sad to tell you this like obviously nobody knows this except the people that are working on maniac which happens to be us like this feels like it's a little too close to that and um and that was a hard day, you know, like that was a hard moment of like, we worked really hard to figure this out. But what was amazing was that we came up with the ending that we came up with, which was, in my opinion, uh, a gajillion times better than the ending that we had come up with before. Um, which, I mean, it was much harder and it was more challenging and it was more of a like nail biter in the sense that like, if this doesn't get pulled off correctly. I was really grateful that Natasha directed the last episode because I was really nervous about those dual um, 
dimensions working and uh when she turned in her director's cut it was like the best director's cut I've ever seen like I just assumed with all of that information it was going to be a mess not because of her uh, talent but because it was so even when we were describing it when I was describing it in the room when I was pitching them kind of realizing they're in different times in different dimensions I was like you know I had two uh, diagrams of the deli and I was explaining like the blocking of each moment. <laughs> like this is why he doesn't know that she's there he's gone back to look for oatmeal then he comes back around she sees him there he's dropped the thing she's with Mike and everyone was like wait a minute what are you talking about like you have to write it you have to make a visual a visual picture of it and so I did like a, 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 an eagle eye floor plan diagram of like this is what you will be seeing this is and then I acted the whole thing out and was like this is what happens you know and she had cut, she had not only shot it beautifully and storyboarded it and, and come up with all these beautiful things with Chris, but she'd also cut it together with Laura perfectly. So when I was watching it, I really breathed the sigh of relief of like, for the first time in nine months of just like, oh my God, I, it works. It totally works. And, um, but I think if I were to do it again, <laughs> I would agree with you. I think we would, we probably should have figured it out ahead of time, but I'm glad that I'm glad that it was the, I'm glad that it was the, um, the journey that it was. Because I don't know if we would have worked that hard to come up with something that clever, to be honest. I was reading a couple of interviews last night, um, and it, it, one thing that everybody asks you about is, I guess this was pitched as a, a three seasons. Yes, have. yeah. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try and pick information on, on season two or three, but there was something that I saw that you had said which I think is probably true of anybody that's been through something like this, which is, you know, I learned a lot for season. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I, I'm just wondering, you know, I'm not looking and for... And there were things that happened in the first season that, uh, you know, we had originally pitched for the second season. That's the other mm. thing. <laughs> <laughs> that, like, we were, like, burning through stories so quickly. <laughs> I, like, I was like, oh, I guess we, gotta, uh, we should go use that yeah. thing. It's like, what did you pitch for second season? You just watched it. <laughs> <laughs> it's I mean, not the whole thing, but there was definitely, like, some stuff that I was like... Well, we were going to save this, but let's go for it. But I'm wondering, kind of big picture doing, because it is, it, it, I mean, there are uh, films and, and that have used devices like this, but I mean, I, you know, it is something so um, different and it, it's a different way of thinking, in particular when you start thinking about having an existential ending like that, you know? Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm wondering, um, and I, one, one else to start with a com uh, compliment, which is, is that I loved that, and one of the reasons the last episode worked is we didn't dwell too much on the on the exposition. At a certain point, you oh, figured it. Yes, you yes, yes, you, yes. At a certain point, you figured out what the audience will understand and at what point. But I'm curious, what are kind of some of the you know, in terms of like creating this type of world, what are some things that you did learn that you probably are looking forward to maybe doing a little bit different? Oh, I mean, I think the thing that was the hardest thing about Russian Doll that I learned the most about was. Um, was the the technical constraints of of making it. it it just was so difficult to make the show in that amount of time for the budget that we had and um i'm really proud of it and i'm really proud of what we were able to make happen in those constraints but that was the main thing was that i i felt like uh you know not that we were unsupported we were very supported by netflix and by our producers it's just that like i think we kind of thought you know, there's this baseline for a half hour comedy and that's kind of in their head what people think and they just are like, yeah, let's just make it, you know. <laughs> and then once you kind of realize what the show is, you're like, oh, you know, this is going to be 
you know, a lot more difficult than I anticipated it being. Um, uh, and I think I would love to have like a little bit more flexibility um, to be able to make more mistakes. Uh, like that was the thing about Russian Doll was that it felt like anytime a mistake happened, it felt to me it felt like almost catastrophic because we didn't because we didn't time. have any time. Yeah. We didn't have any time. It felt like you can't you cannot with a story like this go back and like reshoot something. Like you just like everything as the doors were closing behind us, like we had to make sure that everything was Gosh, what's the good analogy? It's like we had to make sure that room was clean like as the door cl like closed behind us and it's just that kind of uh like down and dirty indie comedy mentality for a show that I think this is trying to do something so big. Uh that's the thing that I really learned the most that I was like, "Oh, I I think that if I had to do it all over again, I would probably not pitch the show so much as a as a half-hour comedy as much as it would be like what Natasha likes to say is like a half hour existential adventure show. Like this is a show that actually is going to take a lot of time and money and, you know, those kinds of things. And we shouldn't be back. We actually shouldn't be backing into, you know, what people think of as a half hour comedy and more so kind of like dictating. This is what, this is what the new half hour looks like. Uh, Netflix, give them more time, please. <laughs> <laughs> Before I let you go, I, I read, uh, also last night I read, uh, what you wrote for Hollywood Reporter. Oh, yes, yeah. Which, uh, you know, this uh, we have nothing on but uh, directors and, and, and filmmakers. And, and, and you really uh, took an interesting challenge to the auteur theory. And I think one of the things that um, was particular was this, uh, one of the things I, I'm interpreting, but this concept less of a voice or an author and more that they do it by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is a little bit like kind of, am I wrong about that? Is that in that sense of it's one thing to have vision, it's one thing to, to have course. an author, but there's an element of, of how that comes to life? Yeah. And I think that it's also just my experience in the hiring world of being a female writer-director. Like um, the number of jobs I have not gotten are infinite and the amount of work that I've done to try to get them is enormous. And... Um, you know, listen, no one said to my face, like, you know, we don't think you can do this because you're a girl. But I do think that there is, there is an idea of what a director looks like. And um, a lot of people will say, no, it's, it's what you do and the cream rises to the top and just the best person for the job. And, and the, the only reason I disagree with that is partially because you know, the auteur myth is so strong that it is really what they want to see is a guy come in there who will do everything himself. You know, like who who basically can say, I will do all of this by myself and um, it will be perfect and you don't need to worry about anything. You know, like, and... And it, um, and it also justifies some crazy behavior. And it justifies some crazy behavior. It, ju it justifies, like, I mean, I remember somebody telling me about... Um, a male showrunner creator type person and their behavior, you know, and I, listen, I'm not, you know, perfect by any means of, of the, of by any means, but, 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 um, I think if you set yourself up that way, male or female, you're setting yourself up for failure. Like you're setting yourself up to fail because 
you cannot do you cannot do something like there's no way to do something like Russian Doll by yourself. There's no way to do something like any of the films that I mentioned in that. You know, th- by I mean, one of the things that I just did recently is I um, bought all of the concept art for Star Wars for the original Star Wars um, by that great guy. I've forgotten his name. Anyway, I just bought um, that two volume book about him and uh, Ralph McQuarrie. That's his name. Jesus. So I I just recently got his like two volume set um, of of Star Wars concept art from Ralph McQuarrie. And I'm just like, this is insane. This guy created Star Wars. <laughs> like, really, like there's so, like like you see the, the evolution of the idea uh, from what George is trying to express to him to what he puts down on the piece of paper to what it eventually becomes, why he makes particular decisions, like why he decides to take things in one direction and not the other. Like, this is like what we understand to be Star Wars. Like. The idea that like that only came from George Lucas, that that o- like that only George Lucas holds the key for what we understand to be Star Wars is just untrue. And I think the the prequels are an ex- excellent example of that. I mean, but you look at Macquarie's work and you realize like what an indelible mark this man has made on on um, culture via this fil- this one role that he played in this film and. Uh, the idea that like when you're hiring a director that everyone is sitting in there waiting for George Lucas and not for the person who's going to know to hire Ralph McQuarrie that's the problem that's the misogyny and the and the and the problem with the auteur myth as it stands today because they're not thinking this is the person that will hire the right people and this is the person that will be able to create the lookbooks and direct people to get them to that place they're just thinking do you know do you have all the answers and the truth is is that nobody does and anybody that says they do is lying one thing i really appreciated was um in taking an aim at some of the stories that have come from the 70s because the women that and literally go through the 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 great the, the, the auteurs that emerged from the 70s, what's been erased from literally each one of their histories is, yeah. is uh, the, a, a, a collaborator, uh, often a woman, who they would not, it, 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 if you dig into these movies, they would not have survived without Yeah, without I mean, that. whether it's a, a, an editor, you know, like Thelma or Marsha Lucas, like, you know, um, it, whether it's uh, an editor or a production designer like Polly Platt, or, or if it is an actor, you know, it is a, it is a, um, a, a Gwen Verdon or a, a Mia Farrow. Like, you know, the, the idea that that person is replaceable and the writer-director is not, is something I would challenge. And I would challenge that to myself as well. I would take myself to that task. Like, you're not as, um, I am not any more indispensable than any of my crew is. Do you know what's next for you? Do you have a movie in the works? No, I don't. Well, I do, I I have some things in development uh, Mm -hmm. that have been announced. I'm I'm, I'm writing a a film for Netflix and and rewriting a film for HBO Films. Um, But I don't have like my next, like, Project, project, meaning uh, nothing's been greenlit. I'm not moving into anything yet. And, and, and uh, Amy, Natasha, and yourself aren't 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 starting to think of like let's let's 
let's have lunch and talk about this sometime in the next. I mean, year. we haven't yet, but I, I, I mean, again, we have, we did talk about it, you know, back in the day mm-hmm. of just like this is what we think the show is moving forward. I think um, we've we need to have that conversation of like. So now what? Yeah. <laughs> now knowing what we know. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for coming in. I really thank appreciate you for having it. Me. It's a wonderful show. Thank you.